How much do we know about the Cold War? We'll find that actually the Cold War wasn't so cold. There was a real conflict. Do we have the full picture? It's often from the North's perspective. We want to get the story right. We've just got to include the Global South. Global South or the Third World. This is the secret struggle for Cold War dominance. A podcast that brings stories. He was a man without a country. Facts. Czechoslovakia provided Cuban intelligence. And historical background. These were places where stakes were too high. Of the secret and untold Cold War. Hello? Episode 6. When student becomes the master. Welcome to the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast. By now you know we travel the world and go from Tanzania and Cuba to Czechoslovakia or pristine paradise islands in the Indian Ocean. And the reason why we travel all around the world, but mostly to countries in Africa, Latin America and Asia, is because these areas or regions, referred to by historians as the Global South or the Third World, played a big role in the Cold War. Until now, the Cold War conflict was perceived as a hostile, not open type of conflict between the US and the USSR. But from what we know, thanks to new primary research and classified secret Cold War documents, we are increasingly aware of the fact that the Cold War was a conflict fought in many, many regions of the world, and oftentimes it was a very hot Cold War. Today's story is a perfect example of a very hot Cold War conflict where, without even trying to hide it, the East and the West fought for dominance. Yes, we're going to Vietnam. Three years ago, in 2017, at the National Police Academy in Hanoi, a statue was unveiled. A statue of Felix Dzerzinski, also called Iron Felix. He was the founder of the infamous Cheka, the Soviet secret police that was the predecessor of the KGB. It was known for mass executions, persecution and shooting of political opponents without trial. So this guy, Iron Felix, was getting a statue in central Hanoi just three years ago. An article in the official newspaper of the Vietnamese Ministry of Public Security welcomed the inauguration of the new memorial site as an important contribution to the celebrations of the 100th anniversary of the glorious Russian October Revolution. Why? In today's episode, we'll dive deep into the Cold War past to understand also present-day Vietnam. What is the chain of assistance? The Technical Operations Department in Hanoi was something like a carbon copy of the Technical Operations Department in East Berlin. What happens when the student becomes the master? There was something like a spy mania going on in North Vietnam during the war and also in in the post-war years. And what can you do when you realize that fraternal solidarity does not make economic sense? 
Um, the Ministry of State Security still wanted to provide assistance, but under the condition that the Vietnamese also bought some technical operational equipment from East Germany for money. All this coming up in episode 6, so let's go. Welcome to the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast, in which we tell the hidden stories of the Cold War, bring new information, dig up secret documents that bring a new light and perspective on the Cold War. My name is Katerina Urban-Richterova. At the beginning, I promised we to dig up the past of Vietnam, so let's go for a deep, deep dive into the past and start in the 1500s. From around the 1500s, Vietnam caught the attention of many European big names like the Portuguese, the Dutch, the British. They all tried to mark the territory of Vietnam as saying, I was here, or at least to establish commerce with it, mainly with the then famous port city of Hoi An in central Vietnam. A bit later, the French were seriously trying to win over this region with religious missionaries, trade, and by the 1880s, they controlled the whole country until the end of World War II. Around this time, also the Japanese exploited Vietnam, which resulted in mass famine. Unfortunately, the history of Vietnam is one filled with many generations experiencing brutal hardship and pain. So now we're at around the end of World War II, and finally in 1945. Vietnam officially became independent in 1945. Then the French came back to, to rebuild like a colonial rule in, in Indochina and so that's why the first first Indochina war broke out. The first Indochina war was a nationalist liberation movement based on a communist ideology of the Viet Minh, seeking independence for Vietnam from France and the end of the Japanese occupation. In the end the French lost the war and um, the so-called Viet Minh, so that was military arm of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, won the war. Then Vietnam was divided, temporarily divided, at the Geneva Conference in 1954. North of the 17th parallel, we have the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, like a socialist country. South of the 17th parallel, the so-called Republic of Vietnam, that was transformed by the United States into a like an anti-communist um, bulwark. Yes, the country was divided into two parts, the communist north and the pro-western or capitalist south. Vietnam, however, didn't enjoy too much time off from war because in 1964, at the height of the Cold War, the Second Vietnam War broke out. Most of what we will be talking about today is brand new information about North Vietnam, the communist part, claims historian Martin Grossheim. Um, my name is Martin Grossheim. I'm originally from Germany, and um, but now I'm in South Korea, based in Seoul, and affiliated to the Seoul National University um, as an associate professor in Vietnamese history. 
I received an email from you at five o'clock in the morning. Does it mean you're you're an early bird, are you? Martin was kind enough to do the time difference math so that I would not have to record at 2 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, I'm in Seoul, uh, South Korea, and here it's four in the afternoon. Just a quick disclaimer, of course, we're recording over the internet, so the sound might not be 100% all the time. I'll try to do my best to hide it. Okay, so I'm in Central Europe, Slovakia, and Martin is in Seoul, South Korea, which he claims is close enough to his big addiction. Actually, I was the f- second West German student to study Vietnamese in Vietnam, and I went to Hanoi in 1987. And uh, so since then, I somehow I have been addicted to Vietnam. What is it about Vietnam that is so interesting, enticing for you, addictive for you? When I went to Vietnam in 1987, the Cold War was still going on. That means there were only a few students from capitalist countries in Vietnam. And at that time, it was quite difficult for Vietnamese to have contacts with foreigners, especially with foreigners from capitalist countries. But still, I managed to to, to make some friends with Vietnamese, and I found them very, very nice, just nice people, very uh, open people, in spite of the, the different political system, very hospitable. And then in terms of history, Vietnamese history is, is really interesting. So Martin was there in Vietnam during the Cold War. No wonder he has stories and new discoveries to share. Okay, so let's start at the infamous Vietnam War of 1964, which was the biggest armed conflict during the Cold War era. First American troops landed in in February or March 1965, and then the Vietnam War escalated in 1968. There were about more than 500,000 American troops in Vietnam. On the one hand, it was like a conflict within the Cold War, like a proxy war, so like a war between the two political systems, the socialist system and the socialist world and the capitalist world. On the other hand, it was also a domestic struggle between socialist Vietnamese and non-socialist Vietnamese. The South, with the capitalist Saigon, was the non-socialist Vietnamese, affiliated and helped by the Americans, and later by other capitalist countries. And the North, with the capital Hanoi, was the socialist-dominated Vietnam. At that time, North Vietnam was desperately in need of not only of weapons, like sophisticated weapons, but also of expertise and, and technology to build up a security apparatus. So that's why the Vietnamese Ministry of Public Security, that is like the, let's say, the Vietnamese counterpart of the East German Stasi, sent a delegation to Eastern Europe to beg for aid and to, to ask for support. Yes, good old security and intelligence assistance. All you fans of this podcast have heard these words more than a normal person probably should. We have known quite a lot about this like the military assistance provided by the Soviet Union and, and by the People's Republic of China. But so far, we have not known a lot about other fields of, of socialist aid. And one of those fields is um, support in expertise of intelligence. So, as the Vietnam War starts in 1964 and B-52 bombers are starting to bomb North Vietnam, their leaders realize they need stuff, security and intelligence stuff and know-how, and decide not to wait around for potential friends, but be proactive and visit their socialist comrades in Warsaw, Budapest and East Germany and just ask for help. The East Germans, they were really eager to help and out of like 
solidarity, like international solidarity against the imperialists. And they helped from the beginning, from the beginning of the Vietnam War. And all the socialist countries started to help Vietnam, provided not only military assistance, but also to build up the security apparatus. Martin went through a ton of documents to realize that there was a very particular chain of assistance created for helping brotherly comrades of the Eastern Bloc. I found it quite interesting that after the end of the Second World War and after the Soviet Union had occupied Eastern Europe and had set up socialist regimes in Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, as we know, also started to build up a well-functioning security apparatus modeled after the KGB. Military and intelligence know-how was disseminated from the Soviet Union to the so-called second-tier states within the socialist bloc, that being Poland, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary or Bulgaria. For example, in, in East Germany, the so-called Stasi or the Ministry of State Security in East Germany was also instrumental in helping the socialists or the communists in East Germany to consolidate its power and also to track down enemies and so on. They used the same techniques as the KGB, the Soviet secret police, to fortify the power of the Communist Party in the country. The state security would eavesdrop, interrogate, no jokes about the party, ordinary people would report or denounce their neighbors. The basic techniques would be the same at the KGB as at the East German secret police, the Stasi, or the Czechoslovak secret police, the STB. So someone from Czechoslovakia, for instance, would not be surprised by this kind of treatment in the Soviet Union. It felt like brotherly home. And later on, it was East Germany and, and other socialist countries who then started to help smaller socialist countries in the global south, or in, in those days it was called the third world, to set up a security apparatus. And so then these smaller or junior East Bloc countries would forward this know-how further to countries like North Vietnam, that is with the knowledge and support of the USSR. And so Vietnam became a kind of a test case of whether a transfer of intelligence know-how among socialist countries during the Cold War was possible. And yes, it was possible, and the chain did not stop here. After the end of the Vietnam War, that means in 75, when Vietnam had close relations with Laos, Laos became, also became socialist at the end of 75. Vietnam, that had received aid from the East Germany and other socialist countries, intelligence, technology and expertise, then started to transfer this knowledge to Laos. And then after Vietnam had occupied Cambodia and toppled the Pol Pot regime, then Vietnam also started to help Cambodia to, to build up the security apparatus. Hmm, interesting. In our previous episode about Tanzania, we've heard Dr. Tom McGuire say something very similar when talking about the Great Britain trying to build a common Commonwealth intelligence culture across its former colonies during the era of decolonization. One of the things that this socialist chain of assistance or security assistance blueprint 
thus brought to many countries, was the sword and the shield system. The sword and the shield, that is actually a symbol or an emblem of the KGB, or, or to be more precise, of the Cheka, which is the predecessor of the KGB in the Soviet Union. And um, the sword, sword and the shield, that was the basic, actually, the basic function of the security apparatus in socialist countries to consolidate the, the power of the Communist Party and to track down external and internal enemies. And the system was very strict and strong. As Grossheim writes, in the late 1960s, during the so-called anti-party revisionist affair, hundreds of cadres, intellectuals and other individuals who were suspected of not fully supporting the militant course of the party leadership were simply arrested and sidelined. Okay, so it was settled. The North Vietnamese were looking for and asking for help, but not in a timid manner, hoping someone would contact them and offer help. They had their own agency. They knew what they needed to survive and were not afraid to ask for it, even if it meant sending out Cold War Facebook friendship requests to anyone they could think of, which could cause a situation like this. In January of 1979, a delegation of the East German state security, the Stasi, had to change its schedule for a trip to Vietnam at a short notice because, allegedly, the Vietnamese were busy, on a trip, out of town, could not meet them. However, the Stasi delegation later found out that actually the Vietnamese were meeting the Czechoslovaks then, and that's why they could not meet. Hanoi in the late 1970s was a town full of delegations from socialist countries coming in and out who knew nothing about each other's presence. So the chain of fraternal assistance was on, but not all that choreographed as one might think. I also have to add that today we're talking about the intelligence and security assistance that the GDR, the East Germans, provided the Vietnamese. It was an immense help that lasted for a very long time. But we're not saying the East Germans were friend number one for Vietnam. Dr. Martin Grossheim confirms to me that the Soviet Union provided the Vietnamese with a lot of intelligence assistance, probably more than the GDR, and tons of materials from the Hungarian, Polish or Czechoslovak and other archives await to be examined to provide the full, complex truth. So the little piece of the puzzle we now have is that it wasn't just the USSR helping the Vietnamese fight the Americans and imperialism, but that also the small Eastern Bloc countries were chipping in, and it seems that the East Germans were pretty generous with their help. Okay, so in 1966, a delegation from East Germany arrived in Hanoi to take stock of what the Vietnamese had and what technical equipment they needed to check whether the East German gadgets for room and telephone surveillance worked properly under the humid Vietnamese conditions. The East German delegation soon realized that their Vietnamese counterparts had no experience with running surveillance over room or tapping a phone. They had the German equipment, but now needed the know-how. Forging documents, invisible ink messages, they needed to learn how to do all the basics of espionage. It took a while, but the Stasi, the East German secret police, eventually helped build an entire technical operations department in Hanoi. 
That's a department that develops and produces operational equipment. That is equipment needed for intelligence operations. So like, you know, surveillance equipment or concealment devices or even, you know, like containers, small containers. So things like that. So in the 1970s, after a few years of assistance, they had um, the technical operations department in Hanoi was something like a carbon copy of, of the technical operations department in East Berlin. Uh, in your article, you write that one of the Vietnamese leaders stated, I, I believe he was a minister of uh, defense, who said this was a tremendous amount of aid. And if we had not gotten it, I do not know how our work could have been done. How important was the aid from the Soviets and especially from the Stasi for the North Vietnamese during the Vietnam War? Mm. The military assistance was really instrumental, but next to this war, there was also like intelligence war was going on in, in Vietnam. And uh, the South Vietnamese sent lots of spies to, to North Vietnam who tried to contact non-communists or to build up non-communist cells to gather information and so on. Uh, they were supported by the United States and they were provided with like the most modern equipment that was available. So that's why the North Vietnamese really needed modern equipment. And this equipment was provided, of course, first of all, by the Soviet Union. But then East Germany built up this technical operations department that was a very, very important department producing and development all kinds of technology that was important for operational work. Not only to track down these spies that were sent in from from South Vietnam, but also to track down domestic enemies. So, of course, the natural next question is, if they had not gotten this help, what would have happened to North Vietnam? Or uh, how much, in fact, did uh, North Vietnam rely on this, as you call it, fraternal help? Yeah, I mean, at least during the Vietnam War, the North Vietnamese were not able to produce any and you know technical equipment um, themselves. That it was just impossible. The Vietnamese were pretty good students, and they were getting better and better at spying. There was something like a spy mania going on in North Vietnam during the war and also in, in the post-war years. Even somebody who, you know, like a Vietnamese who spoke like a foreign language, like, like English or French, uh, was considered to be to be a spy because people thought, this person can speak French, so he must be a spy. So many Vietnamese were monitored by the um, security apparatus. And foreigners living in Vietnam, even foreigners from socialist countries, were monitored by the Vietnamese security apparatus as well. I found this uh, actually uh, part in your uh, article very, very interesting and ironic because you write, it's actually an irony of history that even the experts from fraternal East Germany who stayed in hotels reserved for foreigners in Hanoi and other cities were possibly monitored by means of surveillance technology provided by the GDR Ministry of State Security. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's really an uh, irony of history because uh, the East Germans provided all that surveillance equipment. And uh, and I know that East German diplomats were monitored by the Vietnamese security apparatus. I made some interviews with former East German diplomats and they told me, although, of course, East Germany was on, on you know, very good terms with North Vietnam and, and or socialist Vietnam and, you know, there were comrades and so on and so on. Still, they were monitored all the time and they were aware of that. 
so what does that mean that despite the immense aid that was coming from Germany uh, or even the Soviets, there was still this mistrust uh, because they were foreigners? Yeah, that's an aspect. It's um, that's a phenomenon. That's it's very difficult to understand, and um, maybe it's necessary to talk a bit about the situation before the Vietnam War started in 1964-65. Because when Khrushchev was in charge in the Soviet Union, when he was Secretary General, he had propagated the so-called policy of peaceful coexistence, and this policy actually was attacked by the People's Republic of China as they used the word revisionist. And the North Vietnamese in those uh, at that time, they also uh, completely disagreed with the Soviet policy of peaceful coexistence because they were convinced that only by military means they could achieve reunification of their country. So somehow they were they were prepared for a war. After the Vietnam War started, there was some sort of basic, in spite of all this help, you know, from the socialist countries, in spite of all that, on the Vietnamese side, there was some, you know, deep inside, there was some sort of mistrust towards the uh, their socialist comrades. And that is why the Vietnamese security apparatus also monitored their socialist comrades from Berlin, from Warsaw, from Moscow, and so on. And as you're right, uh, people who would have maybe come back from uh, a socialist country for maybe studies or something like that m had to be sent uh, for uh, maybe even up to two years to re-education camps where they would have to uh, work in agriculture because of the fear that they could be sleeper agents. Yeah, and also because basically the Vietnamese um, security apparatus was afraid that during their stay in, in, you know, in East Germany or in other socialist countries that these Vietnamese would have, you know, adopted some some ideas that were not like in conformity, you know, with the orthodox uh, policy of the leadership in Hanoi. So they were ready to accept military assistance, intelligence service assistance and know-how. However, they still felt or, or had a block against some of the, the influence that uh, some of those Eastern Bloc countries could have had on them. Right. For example, it's it's really interesting phenomenon that the Soviet Union provided um, very instrumental military assistance and economic assistance to North Vietnam, and uh, during some years of the Vietnam War, uh, it was like the the main provider of military assistance. But the influence that the Soviet Union actually had on North Vietnam was quite limited. The KGB wanted to and tried to operate on the territory of North Vietnam, but they weren't able to, simply because it was so difficult to go undetected. In today's episode, we'll spend more time on security and intelligence assistance and less on the fighting. However, I have to say that the Vietnam War was a brutal conflict claiming the lives of over three million people. It was long and very costly. But let's skip the 10-year war period and fast forward to April of 1975, when the Democratic Republic of Vietnam won over the South Vietnamese and the Americans. The Soviet bloc countries, including the GDR, the East Germans, celebrated, but their job or cooperation was not over yet. East Germany actually pledged to continue and even to broaden its support to Vietnam with the slogan, Solidarity with Vietnam, now more than ever. After the war, the Vietnamese government or the Vietnamese leadership faced lots of challenges. So North Vietnam had waged the war not only to reunify the country, but also to, to build up socialism in the south. 
And South Vietnam basically had been like a capitalist country. So after the end of the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese leadership in Hanoi had to make sure that um, South Vietnam, that had been you know much more prosperous than North Vietnam, North Vietnam during the war was very poor, had to make sure that South Vietnam was integrated into a socialist Vietnam and had to make sure that socialism was built up also in South Vietnam. And that was a huge challenge. And moreover, there were Vietnamese people in the south of the country, formerly run as capitalist and influenced by the Americans, who were not happy about the fact that their South Vietnam was turning into a socialist country and Saigon becoming Ho Chi Minh City. So the intelligence guys had their hands full once again, setting up the security apparatus in the south, scanning for possible troublemakers and enemies, solidifying socialism in the south, all of that. And by the way, check the map. Vietnam is a huge and long country. It's a country of over 90 million people, and it takes over 36 hours by train from Hanoi, which is at the north, to Saigon, the south. So they had to cover or secure a huge territory. So when the socialist way of life won over imperialism, the Vietnam War was over, and finally also due to a fallout with China, in the late 1970s, Hanoi started to put their trust issues towards the Russians aside and aligned even more closely with the socialist bloc. Vietnam became a member of Comic-Con, the socialist economic bloc. They signed a military corporation and even... Vietnam was like integrated into the, the socialist intelligence community. So it signed cooperation treaties with the KGB and also with the Ministry of the TDR, Ministry of State Security and other socialist uh, security apparatus of Eastern European states. And from then on, uh, for example, there was an East German liaison officer working at the GDR embassy in Hanoi and uh, Vietnamese cadres from the Ministry of Public Security attended uh, you know, regular meetings together with their comrades from other socialist countries talking about what kinds of threats the socialist countries faced from capitalist countries and so on and so on. Okay, let's talk money just a little. During the Vietnam War, this fraternal help from socialist countries coming into Vietnam was for free? In the beginning, it was ideology. So it was out of like solidarity with this, the North Vietnamese who were being attacked by, by the uh, American superpower, you know, bombed by B-52 bombers and infiltrated by South Vietnamese spies. And East Germany was eager to help the North Vietnamese, their North Vietnamese comrades. But then in the 1970s, the GDR, the East Germans, slowly but surely felt the Vietnamese were getting too greedy, needy and demanding. Martin Grossheim, in fact, found a secret document that writes about a trip of the East Germans to Hanoi in 1979. In contrast to the Vietnamese comrades, the Laotian comrades are modest and not so effusive and do not make further demands for additional shipments, the document writes. So in short, the Vietnamese were very thankful for the help, but never forgot to provide a new wish list to the East Germans, who thought they were being absolutely unrealistic. After the war, the Germans were starting to realize that this internationalist solidarity is very costly. I found some files from the 1980s and uh, according to these files, the 
to the Stasi fights. Um, the Ministry of State Security still wanted to provide assistance to, to their Vietnamese comrades, but under the condition that the Vietnamese Ministry of Public Security also bought some technical operational equipment from East Germany for money. That was also actually, I think, due to the economic problems that East Germany faced or started to face in the 1970s. And the East Germans increasingly wanted to, to, you know, to make money out of this intelligence relationship. And also the Czechoslovaks, as you say, they were trying to get some of their medical equipment over to the hospitals in Vietnam. Yeah, that's right. So there was some interesting, you know, it's like, like competition between the um, socialist countries going on in Vietnam. So in the case of hospitals, the GDR helped Vietnam to build a, a hospital in Hanoi that's actually still called the Vietnamese German Hospital. And the Czechoslovakia did the same. So there is also a Viet Czechoslovakian hospital in Hanoi. We have some evidence that Czechoslovakia was quite clever in advertising their technical equipment in Vietnam. So the Vietnamese bought some medical equipment from Czechoslovakia and the East Germans knew about that and obviously they also tried their best but uh, they were not that successful. <laughs> So the Germans say, I think we need to start making some profit from these solidarity shipments. And this is how socialist internationalism assumed a commercial character. However, the plan of the quid pro quo was never fully realized. And when in 1989 the wall came down, meaning the Berlin Wall, which is a metaphor for communism in Europe, it all changed and Vietnam never really got a chance to fully pay back the Germans. The Germans now have a different democratic regime, but in Vietnam, the socialist forces are still going strong. Hence the strange celebration of the statue of Iron Felix just three years ago. Of course, the Vietnamese security apparatus is still there and it's still very strong and it is still one of the so to say, the pillars of the Vietnamese Communist Party. But, um, I mean, nowadays you can communicate freely with Vietnamese and uh, you can stay with Vietnamese. And that was absolutely impossible in those days. That was Dr. Martin Grossheim from Seoul National University. You can read his full article in the special issue of the International History Review under the title The East German Stasi and Vietnam, a contribution to an entangled history of the Cold War. That was episode 6 of the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast. If you like our podcast and want more of it, find us on any of the popular podcasting platforms. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. And there you can hit the plus or subscribe or add button so that you get the latest episode of the podcast as soon as it's out. If you like our podcast or this episode, share it or rate us so that more people can find out about the hidden stories of the Cold War. We have another episode coming out in two weeks' time, so watch out for it. And in the meantime, check out our Twitter. We're at CWDominance or we're on Facebook under the name The Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance, where we publish a lot of extra material that didn't make it into the podcast. This podcast is created and produced independently. Interviews, editing, sound design and all the rest of it is done by me, Katarina Urban-Richterova. We would like to thank the Warwick Institute of Advanced Study for their contribution to the project. 
If you have any questions or comments or feedback, email us at coldwardominance, in one word, at gmail.com. Before we go, a big thank you to Martin Grossheim for finding the time to talk to me. And of course, a huge thank you to you guys for listening to the Secret Struggle for Cold War Dominance podcast. And to lighten things up a bit, at the end, here is our regular nugget of wisdom. When I was in Hanoi in 1987, once I met an old Vietnamese woman who looked at me and um, she asked, so where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from Germany. And she said, but east or west? And I said, west Germany. And then she said, oh, so you must be a spy. <laughs> and I must admit at that, you know, back in 1887, I was just irritated. I didn't understand why did this old woman asked me whether I'm a spy. And so I just said, you know, no, I'm not a spy. I'm just a student. And she was very friendly and said, okay, so have a nice day. But later on, when I read this translation of a report written by the Vietnamese, uh, you know, security cadres, so I completely understand why this old woman had asked this question, because, you know, Vietnam still was in this spy mania.